Appreciate it, Brother Billy. Then appreciate the opportunity uh, to come be with you uh, once again. I always enjoy coming and visiting with you here at, at Dollar Branch and uh, certainly thankful this congregation sees fit to help us in the work that we're involved in with Fishers of Men uh, and also with our overseas work with netcasters. And I'm certainly thankful for the topic that's been given to me. Uh, it's something that's uh, very near uh, to me and I enjoy uh, studying and talking about uh, things of this nature. Normally my family would be with me and uh, when, I, when I'm traveling short distances they, uh, I'll bring them as much as possible um, but uh, Coldwater, my home congregation Coldwater uh, also has vacation Bible school going this week and Rachel my wife is, is teaching and of course my children are there uh, with her as well. But I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here with you tonight. As was mentioned, our text comes from uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18 and 19, and we also might put in the parallel passage, uh, Mark 1 and verse 17. I want to treat, and we'll go through those passages, I guess, very quickly, and we'll talk more about them in, in just a little bit. Uh, but I can get a volunteer, someone read for us, please, Matthew 4. Uh, verses, let's go 18 to 20. Thank you, sir. Um, so we have the account of Jesus calling his, his first apostles, if you will, first disciples. Uh, in, of who, and who were they? Peter and Andrew, brothers, right? And of course, they were fishermen. Uh, and Jesus used, he was the master of using something that people were very familiar with, something that people could relate to and, and something that people held dear to them and drawing a spiritual lesson from them. He's the master of doing that and he does it right here. Because there they are, they're fishing and that's their livelihood. And he says, come follow me and what will you be? Fishers of men. Uh, we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes, but first, uh, to get our minds moving in the direction I want it to, I want to I ask you a question, and this is a, a class, we can have discussion, feel free, and I ask you a question, I want you to answer out loud, uh, but how does it make you feel uh, to approach someone with the gospel? Be Candid, brutally honest. How does that concept make you feel to approach somebody with the gospel? The more direct, the more awkward it is. Okay. What do, you, what do you mean the more direct? I'm, like, I don't know, like I think sometimes at work I can, I can maybe try to raise a question or something like that, but it's like the more Okay. Okay. Very good. What else?
to the part where you might disagree. Right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think he, and, uh, he used the word awkward. You were, used the word scary. I, those are connected together. It feels awkward because we might be a little bit afraid uh, and, and that sort of thing. However, so we feel, we feel afraid. We might feel a little bit awkward. Um, and we got into a little bit of why because you don't know how they're going to respond. Uh, a common thing that I get when I'm teaching classes, fishers and men classes, uh, something that people commonly say to me is, it's scary because they might ask me something and I don't know what to say. And, or they, uh, they might disagree with me and I might lose my friend and our relationship might change and that sort of thing. And, of course, the big one, what if I, and I kind of alluded to it with the question, but what if I don't know what to say? And, and it becomes scary. And that's completely normal. For us to be nervous, for us to be afraid, uh, in, in a sense, for us to feel a little bit awkward at first, that's completely normal. But let me ask you something. Why, why is it that things scare us or make us feel awkward? Why is that? Any, not, just, not just this, not just approaching somebody. Anything, why is it that anything scares us or makes us feel awkward? There it is. There it is. We don't do it enough, and we haven't built the confidence to do it. That's why. If you do something over and over and over again, and, and, and you gain more confidence in that, it might still make you a little nervous, but is it going to be like when you first started? Obviously not. Um, We've got several men in the church here, and I'm going to use leadership in the church as an example. Men, when, when you first started getting up before the whole assembly and, and led a prayer, how'd you feel? Come on, be honest with me, come on. You're nervous. It's scary. Now, if, if you've been a member of the church for, for some time now and you've done it over and over again, you still might be a little bit nervous, but is it like it was when you started? No. So you've grown. You've developed more confidence. Is it possible to do that with approaching somebody with the gospel? Still have a little bit of nervousness? Sure, absolutely. But have more confidence and have a greater ability? Is that possible? Sure it is. Absolutely it is, without question. Uh, and that's one of the things that we, uh, we try to accomplish uh, in, in the Fishers of Men evangelism training course uh, that uh, Brother Billy was talking about earlier that, uh, that I teach and, and Dad teaches uh, as well. And going back to the question that I asked, how does it make you feel to approach someone? What about when we approach a person and they respond positively uh, and maybe even obey the gospel. How do you feel about it now? Yeah, absolutely. There's a great sense of accomplishment. A soul has been won now. So we go from fear to a sense of accomplishment, recognizing that you've been able to bring a soul to Jesus through the, through the gospel, obviously. Um. 
How, so how important is it? Let's kind of change gears for just a moment and ask the question now, how important is it uh, to be fishers of men? How important is it to teach people the gospel? It's a command. Is, is, are some commands optional and others requirements? <laughs> Doesn't work that way, does it? If it's a command of God, He expects us to do that. He requires us to do that. Now, does God command us to do things that, that we simply cannot do? No. Now, are some commands more difficult than others? Yeah. I have a command to love my wife and, and care for my children. That's an easier command than loving an enemy. <laughs> some commands are easier than others. Some are more difficult. Uh, and many times this command to evangelize, uh, to fish for men, is one that can be more difficult, uh, at least for some. But how important is it? I mean, we're, we're talking about souls. We're talking about eternity. How important is that? You know, many times we... In, and understandably so, we work hard to try and have a good life on this earth and, and take care of our, our loved ones and, make, and help them have a good life and so forth and try to take care of our health uh, and, and all those sorts of things. And that's, that's great, that's good and well, but how long are we going to be on this earth? I mean, a person who lives a really long time lives for a century, right? And that's somebody who lives a long time on this earth. What does that compare to eternity? How important is it? What did Jesus say uh, about the value of the soul? He, he kind of asked a rhetorical question. Matthew 16. He asked a rhetorical question. Somebody read it for us. Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. What, what questions did he ask? Somebody, when you get it, go ahead. Thank you, sir. What profit is there if you gain the whole world yet lose your soul? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. What's the obvious answer? There is no profit. There is no profit. In fact, it's a loss. And not only that, it's the greatest loss that anyone could ever take. He's lost his soul. He's lost the only thing that has any value when this world is, go is over with. He's lost his soul. So how important is it to teach someone the gospel? Well, there's nothing more important than the soul. There's nothing more important than eternity. Now, the word command was mentioned uh, a moment ago. Let's go and notice this command, okay? Uh, 
oftentimes, read a couple passages that we call the Great Commission, okay? Uh, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. This is a passage that typically we are very familiar with. We quote it, we reference it, and we say, we need to teach. But sometimes we fail to take the next step and actually move toward that and apply it the way we should. Jesus said, uh, verse 18, Jesus, Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We won't take the time to read the other one, uh, the parallel in Mark 16, uh, 15 and 16. But he gives the great commission, the command to go and teach. Now, who? In the, in, who is he commanding us to go teach in the text? All nations. The world, right? And I think a mistake that we sometimes make is we read that and we immediately think of world missions. You know, I have the privilege of working overseas quite a bit. I work a lot in India, Philippines, and uh, I was just last month I was in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, you know, we, a lot of times when we read the Great Commission, we think other side of the world. Okay, um, that's included in it. But is that where the Great Commission starts? The other side of the world? No. All right, and sometimes even inside our doors. Uh, I mean, the world starts here, locally. Uh, and I always want to remind fellow parents, I have three young children at home, and uh, I always like to remind my fellow parents uh, that the Great Commission actually starts within our own homes. Parents, our first mission field is our children. And, uh, and as much as I travel, I have to constantly remind myself of that. Don't neglect your first mission field. Uh, so I encourage our parents to uh, recognize the seriousness of that uh, and use the time that we have. Now, does this great commission, this command to teach... Does it, does it still apply to us? And the reason I ask that is that there are some who will say, well, Jesus was talking to his apostles, that was for them. So I want to take just a moment and address that. It is true that Jesus was indeed speaking directly to his apostles, and he said, uh, go evangelize the world. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. But go evangelize the world. And in the context, he's saying to them, I'm leaving, because this is right before his ascension, in the context, he's saying, I'm leaving, you have a job to do, go evangelize the world. So he was giving that command directly to his apostles, but does it apply to us? Verse 20, what do you mean, brother? Teaching them to observe. Teaching them to do what? Observe all things that I've commanded you. Okay, well, what's the most recent, recent command he gave? One verse back, <laughs> go teach. Right, go evangelize. 
Does it apply? Absolutely. That's how, that's how God designed the church to carry on. From the first century, from the time it was established, until now and until the Lord sees fit to come back. That's how the Lord designed the church to carry on. We teach and then we train them to teach others. And it carries on. What happens if one generation fails to do that? Mm. Absolutely. Right. right. In his own eyes. Right. Um, if we fail to teach others coming in, and we, tr and we fail to, to, uh, to instill in them a mind to reach out to others, that congregation where we are dies. That's the seriousness of, this, uh, of the Great Commission. That's the seriousness of being fishers of men. If the church dies, who's going to teach people how to be saved? How important is it? We certainly have a command uh, given by God to reach out to others. Now, let's go, to, go with me to Matthew chapter 9, and I want to talk about the need to be fishers of men. We have a command, obviously. We have a command to be fishers of men. Let's talk for a few minutes about the need to be fishers of men. Matthew 9, let's notice the very end of the chapter. Verses 37 and 38. We'll back up for just a moment. Verse 35, and we'll just kind of read some of the context here. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we have, find Jesus doing a couple of things in, in this context. What's he doing? There you go. Preaching and teaching, we'll call that one thing for our purposes. What, the other thing is healing. So he's showing people that he cares about them physically. He's healing. Do we have a responsibility today to be benevolent and show that we care about people's physical well-being? Absolutely. Jesus did that. Uh, and he commands us to as well. In fact, on that judgment scene, it's interesting to me, then the judgment scene of Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, 25, um, the list there of things that they should have done but didn't do, and then on the contrary, they did do. What are all those examples? What were they doing or what were they not doing? They were benevolent works. Every example in that context is a benevolent. Do we have a responsibility today? Absolutely. Um, but of course, it doesn't stop there. Like Jesus, we need to see about people's spiritual needs. And obviously, we know, as Jesus knew, which is more important, the spiritual or the physical. The spiritual, of course, 
Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about people physically. We must show that we care. In fact, when we show people we care about them physically, they're more likely to listen to what we have about spiritual needs. So Jesus is doing both of those. But he, in verse 36, he looks at the crowd there, and he's moved with compassion. That's a word that we find over and over again when we read about Jesus in his life and how he looked at people. He was moved with compassion. He cared. He loved. But in this context, what moved him to compassion? What was he concerned about in this context? As they're weary and scattered, like what? Sheep with no shepherd. Imagine sheep just wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, not knowing where they're going. What's going to happen to them? They're going to die. Sheep need a shepherd. He's moved with compassion on them because of that. And when when you think about the leadership of that day, the Jewish leadership, they were corrupt. The people who were supposed to be leading, the people who were supposed to be shepherding, They were corrupt, often stepping on those who were in need to lift themselves up, stepping on those who they were supposed to be caring about and leading to lift themselves up. They were corrupt. Jesus looks at them, and in my mind, what I see in in this text is that Jesus looks at the crowd and he sees people that want to do what's right. He looks at the people and he sees people that would follow God if they had the proper leadership to show them how. But they didn't have it. And what's he say? There's a problem. In verse 37, he identifies a problem. The harvest is plentiful. What's the problem? There are not enough workers. Now, I want you to see something significant in this this text here. Jesus said, what is plentiful? The harvest. Think about a field. We'll just say a cornfield, for example, sake, okay? Think about a cornfield. Is everything in that cornfield, is everything out there the harvest? No. You don't want to bring everything that's out there in the field. You don't want to bring it. The harvest is that what you bring in. When you're done harvesting, are there still things in the field? Yeah, you don't want those stalks and things, do you? That's not the harvest. Certainly don't want the weeds, right? That's not the harvest. Jesus didn't say there's a whole lot of people out there. He didn't say there's a whole lot growing in the field, no. He didn't say there's a whole lot of people, no. He said the harvest, those who can be brought into me are plentiful. That's significant. But the problem, not enough workers. I'm convinced we have a similar problem today. There are people out there who will hear and heed the message. We've got to have the workers to get the message to them. We've got to be committed to do the work. What did Jesus say to do about the problem? Last verse, 38. Pray. Therefore, pray. Pray what? He got more specific. Pray what? All right. Send the workers. Send the harvesters. 
right? That's a little bit different from what I often hear prayed uh, by my brethren. A lot of times I hear a prayer, something like this, Lord, we, we pray that the lost will have opportunity to hear the word or something like that. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't, I'm not saying that's a bad prayer. That's not the point. I think it's a good prayer and it has a good point. However, it's still a little different from what Jesus said specifically here. Not just pray for the lost, but pray what? For the workers to go. I would encourage us to practice that. Don't just pray that the lost will hear, but pray that somebody will go. And when you pray that, how is the Lord going to answer it? Is he just going to create a brand new worker and say, okay, go, bring in the heart? Oh, no, that's not how it works. When we pray, Lord, send your workers, how's he going to answer that? That's us, brethren. That's us. We've got to be the workers. We've got to be the harvesters, the, the ones bringing in uh, souls. And I, I promise you, brethren, if we pray, Lord, uh, send your workers, we better be ready uh, for an opportunity. We, let's pray that prayer, Lord, send your workers, and let's be ready to allow the Lord to use us as an answer to that prayer. If we pray that and we're ready uh, to be used, I, I promise you, we're going to have opportunities. They'll be there. We just need to have our eyes ready to see them and our hearts ready to use them. What questions, comments do you have at this point? Let's talk about the process. The process of becoming and being a fisher of men. Uh, we read from Matthew 4, uh, and let's go ahead and get the parallel passage now. Uh, Mark 1 and verse 17. Very similar, but the wording is just slightly different as well. Mark 1 and verse 17, what did Jesus say? Okay. Let's walk through this text step by step and try to see a point. Jesus said, follow me. Now, I just said it, but we'll say it again. Who's speaking there? Jesus. So follow whom? Jesus. Follow Jesus. That means not some man. That means not some creed book, man-made creed book. No. Follow Jesus and Him only. Okay. So follow me and I will. When somebody says to you, I will... What is that? He's giving us his word. He's making a promise. Now, do we always keep our promises? 
I'll, I'll admit that sometimes I fail to keep my word. Uh, not intentionally. If somebody in, makes a promise with no intention of keeping it, that's, that's a lie. That's what that is. Uh, but sometimes, do, so, does something prevent us from doing what we said we're going to do? Or sometimes might we forget? That and my, my wife's not here, but if she were here, she would confirm that sometimes I fail to do what I told her I was going to do. <laughs> Uh, and you know what happens a lot of times? A lot of times I remember, I forget that I told her I was going to do that. I get occupied doing something else. I get distracted. And you know when I remember, when I see her doing it for me, then I remember what I, oh, ouch. Now I've got to apologize and try to make up for that, right? Sometimes we, we fail to keep our word. Sometimes circumstances prevent us from doing what we said we're going to do. Now, but... This isn't just, just another person. This isn't just another man uh, making a promise here in the text. This is Jesus, as we just said. Jesus is not a liar, is he? Do circumstances prevent him from keeping what he said? He's gonna do, no. Does he forget? No. So when he makes a promise, we can count on it. This is deity. This is the second person of the Godhead making a promise here. I will. We can count on that. And then what's the promise? The first part of it says, I will make you. What, is it, what, does, he, what does that mean? I will make you. That indicates a change is going to happen in your life, doesn't it? A change is going to happen in your life. I will make you. Now, in Matthew 4, so a slight different in the wording here, it just he says, I will make you fishers of men. But in Mark 1... A little bit different wording. What's it say? I will make you to become fishers of men. I think those two words are significant. To become fishers of men. That indicates to me that that change may not have been just immediate. But there's a growth process that takes place. When we first become a Christian and begin following Jesus, uh, have we arrived? Is, are we exactly what we need to be? <laughs> Far from it, right? In fact, we never fully get there, but guess what our entire life is? A growth process to become more like Jesus. No, we never fully get, we're, we're, we never reach perfection the way he was. Well, we're continually growing more like him. And hopefully as we grow and over the years and over the decades of following Christ, hopefully uh, our flaws and imperfections and, and our times of sin, hopefully they get smaller and smaller. As we're becoming more like him and going through that growth process. Um, and then finally, he says, I will make you to become fishers of men. What is a fisher of men? We've been talking about that and alluding to it, but let's really get down and, and say it. What is a fisher of men? Absolutely. That's a soul winner. That's what a fisher of men is. A soul winner. 
Now this is a promise from deity, from Jesus himself. If a person is truly going to follow Jesus, they will have a growth process in their life, a growth process in their life that is going to lead them to win souls. Think about that. This is significant because I, I find this thought that I'm about to put in, try to put into your minds, I find this thought very, very humbling. Brethren, if we go through life and we never make real, genuine effort to reach somebody else with the gospel, are we really following Jesus? The answer is obvious, but it's very humbling. If we go through life and we never make real, genuine effort to reach out to others, how can we claim to be a follower of Jesus? What was his main purpose for coming to this earth? <laughs> They're seeking to save the lost. If we're going to be true followers of him, what is going to be our purpose for walking this earth and living? Number one, seeing that we're, our lives are right and we're, we're following what he's left. But also what? Reaching out to others to try and help others follow him too. Fishers of men. Jesus made a promise about that. Sure, absolutely. It was what? Oh. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that goes back to that fear that we have. So many times we, well, I don't know what to say. What if they ask me something I don't know? Okay, well, there's a lot of preparation that we have to do. Now, no matter how much we study, there's still going to be a little bit of anxiety. We're not going to know everything. But we can certainly be a lot better prepared than we were if we didn't study and didn't go through that. That's part of the growth process. Absolutely. Sir? Oh, <laughs> you think about Peter's life. You know, how many times did he make a mistake? But he grew from it, didn't he? You know, we could go through, we don't have time to do it right now, but we could go through several times that Peter messed up, but then you look at the letters that he wrote and how much he matured. He became an elder in the church. He's encouraging people to, uh, to remember the things that he's left them. He grew tremendously. Uh, even shortly after the church was established in Acts chapter 4, I think we see just how far he's come even in that short amount of time because he, is, he and John are being persecuted uh, and they're being threatened by the Jewish leadership to stop speaking of Jesus. And what do Peter and John say? They must obey God rather than men. And he said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Oh, back up one verse from there. What is that about? Verse 28, 29, somewhere in there, in there Acts 4. Uh, don't remember exactly what verse. But uh, uh, Peter and John said, you decide for yourself if it's better for us to obey God rather than men. But we cannot but speak the things. That we, we cannot stop. In other words, what Peter is saying, or Peter and John, what they're saying is, this is who we are. We cannot stop. Now, bring that into our lives. 
thankfully, we have freedoms in this country. In some ways or another, they're being threatened, but we still have a lot more freedom than they do other places in this world and certainly at other times in history. Uh, but if we were being threatened in this way that we must stop teaching the gospel and speaking of Jesus or else we will be imprisoned or be killed, would we have the courage to say, you do what you think is necessary, but I must do this. This is who I am. Would we have that confidence? Would we have that faith? So that's a... When I read of Peter and certainly John, but, but Peter is the one that really impacts me when I see, because just recently he had denied Jesus three times when confronted, but now he's grown to that point. As we become and we go through this growth process, it'll help us to learn from Jesus and notice some things about how he interacted with people. We can be better prepared if we have a plan and a method that we can use for approaching and interacting with people. That's, and that's part of what we do in Fishers of Men, is give people a plan on how we're going to approach people, how we're going to interact, and then when we get the appointment, how we're going to conduct the study. But for our purpose, I don't have time to go into a whole lot of that, but I want you to notice a couple of things. The learning from Jesus. Because one of the biggest fears that people have is questions and things that people might say to them and what do I do in response notice how Jesus did it um, Luke 10 verses 25 to 37 we have a certain lawyer we won't take the time to read it but we'll, I'll kind of walk us through what's happening we have a certain lawyer uh, coming to Jesus and he's tempting or, or try testing Jesus yes sir okay um, and he says what must I do to inherit eternal life what did Jesus do? Did he immediately just spew out the answer right there? No, he didn't. What did he do? He responded with his own question. That's, that's significant. Making people think for themselves. And part of Fisher's Amendment is we teach people how to respond to questions and also how to use questions to get people thinking and helping them to see the truth for themselves. Uh, he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How readest thou? And the man answered his own question. What did he say? Love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, strength, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the neighbor is thyself. But then he asked another question. Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but who's my neighbor? Well, that's when Jesus told that well-known parable. Which one? The good Samaritan, right? And he concluded that by asking his own question. Again, he didn't tell him anything. He asked his own question at the end of it, and he said, who among these three was neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? And the answer was obvious. It was a Samaritan. So the, as Jesus, and of course the man knew the answer, he saw it for himself. But Jesus never told him anything, but he, he helped him to understand that loving your neighbor is not about trying to figure out and decide who my, who's my neighbor going to be. Loving your neighbor is about being a neighbor for those who are in need. And of course, what's the greatest need anybody has? Well, that's the gospel. Um, in, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked a series, uh, asked questions. We notice the type of questions. He's with his apostles, and he says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
What kind of, that's an open question, making people think for themselves and respond. And after he got the answers to that, he now asks another open question. He says, but who, who do you say that I am? Notice how he used questions and made people think for themselves and give a response and think through the process and reach the conclusion. Of course, he's there to guide them through that process. But in our last couple of minutes here, I want, I want us to see one more example. Matthew 20, uh, 21 uh, verses 23 to 27. We have uh, Jesus being approached by the chief priests and elders, and they're trying to start an argument with him. Has anybody ever come up to you and asked a question, trying, not really caring about the answer, but just trying to start an argument with? That happens a lot. Notice how Jesus dealt with that situation in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 21, 23 to 27. They, they come up to him and say, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority, in other words? Jesus knows their heart already, so he's going to reveal their hearts to other people as he responds to them. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to find a way to make accusations against him. He knew what was going on, and he says, okay, well, I've got a question for you. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And in my mind, I see them huddling up, you know. Right, let's think about this. What can we say? If we say uh, it's from God, well, he's just going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him then? But if we say it's from men, well, the people are going to rise up against us because they view John as a prophet. And they say, well, we can't answer. Jesus revealed they weren't really looking for truth. They were just trying to start an argument. So he says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. Brethren, when people are just trying to have an argument, guess what? I don't have to answer their questions. Jesus didn't. I want to give them the opportunity to show whether or not they're sincere. But if they're showing they're not really sincere and don't want to know the truth, well, I don't have to answer their questions. That's a waste of my time. What, what good does it do for me to get into an argument with somebody? No. Now, if they want to sit down and open their Bibles and study, absolutely, I'm all for that. But I'm going to stand there and have an argument back and forth. There's no profit in that. Jesus knew that. And he didn't, didn't give them that, that opportunity. So, are we allowing ourselves to go through that growth process to become fishers of men? Certainly, the Fishers of Men evangelism course can help you. I've got to get my plug in there, right? Uh, now... That's Fishers of Man Evangelism course is great. I love it. That's why I'm involved in it. But, but don't misunderstand me. It, uh, Fishers of Men Evangelism training course is not the only way to become a fisher of men. That's not, that's not the point. But it can certainly help you. And, uh, uh, and I encourage you to do uh, whatever needs to be done to go through that growth process in your life and do the greatest work that anyone could ever possibly do, and that is to win souls being a fisher of men. Thank you so much for the opportunity and your attention.